Hello and welcome to Scottish Independence Podcasts. We're bringing you an episode of I Matters for Westminster about other voting systems, including the American system, the Irish system, and I thought it was a really interesting discussion. So here are MPs John McNally and Martin Day, along with a couple of guests, and hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello and welcome back to the sixth episode of I Matters with myself and John McNally MP and we've got guests tonight. So tonight with us in the studio we have Bert McLennan. Bert, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Bert. Uh, I'm from Alabama. I work for Martin Day and Amy Callahan MP um, and I am wearing my McClellan family tartan tie tonight to just represent the American contingent and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much. And we also have Callum Cooper. Yeah, um, so my name's Callum. I live in Falkirk, local activist within the SNP here in Falkirk, um, and also within the, the youth wing of the SNP. So our, our theme tonight is the democratic deficit, which we thought was pretty appropriate given everything that's been happening of late in the UK, but also it seems to be a global phenomenon, which I'm not sure Bert can elaborate on from the American point of view. We've certainly seen the, the latest developments with the deposit return scheme, which shows you that, you know, I, I say this tongue in cheek, but I think it's pretty appropriate. You'll have had your devolution. A bit like Ford's cars, you can decide anything you want as long as somebody else agrees with it, <laughs> which isn't really devolution at all. So we're, we're heading for, I think, a used car dealer election in the UK as well, because the choice is going to be more of the same, irrespective of who wins, at least in terms of the constitution. So we've got to break that impasse. Bert, do you want to tell us a bit about the, the American situation? I, I always think our politics are a bit bonkers, and then I see what happens in the world. <laughs> I, I watched the last American Trump win for the time before, and you know he, he didn't even win the number of the maximum number of votes, and it's just no, he didn't. Um, I'd say yeah, uh, there was there was one glorious moment in about the summer of 2019, after three years of egregious undemocratic politics in the United States. When we became briefly very grateful to our, our friend Tories in the United Kingdom for making Brexit such an embarrassing disaster that it took the spotlight off us for a minute. Um, but no, I think if you look back 25 years ago, most people in America would have thought that our system was the model for global democracy. We, we believed that it was we'd struck the right balance between liberty and representation and deliberation. And then in 2000, a one and a half term governor from Texas who freely admitted that he had no experience of foreign policy and no particular views of domestic policy, um, lost the national election by, by, by 500,000 votes to the vice president, Al Gore, and yet won the election because of 530 votes in Florida. Um, I think that was an initial kind of democratic trauma for the people in the United States. But for a time, we assumed it was an aberration. And then just 16 years later, Donald Trump, this diseased reality TV star haunted cheese buff, um, lost by two and a half million votes to Hillary Clinton and still managed to win the election. And the, the effects of that, even though he's now been beaten and even if he loses the next election, we have a Supreme Court, which if the winner of the popular vote in the last two presidential elections had appointed the justices to it, would currently be seven to two Democratic. But instead, it's stacked with six conservative justices who will be able to blunt the actions of every democratic president for the next decade it is a i think a start warning um if you see democratic backsliding get out ahead of it i think that's a very good very good warning and and we, we all need to be 
really cautious of democracy going the wrong direction. And, and there's too many evidence going with that. That is the case. We need a, a, fairer, a fairer system where not only does every is every vote counted, but every vote counts. Um, and that's principle to just getting in a, a fairer society where every view is, is held by the, the proportionals of its electability. Callum, would you would you like to add anything to the discussion so far as well? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I will talk about, obviously, America. I'm not from America, but um, I think going on the sort of bottle return scheme was, was brought up. I think um, it's quite concerning the news in the last little while. The UK sort of saying, you know, the British government, the Westminster government, saying that we're sick of devolution now. We're sick of, you know, these these pesky not step up in Scotland, you know, representing the people that they've been elected to represent. And actually, we're going to put a stop to it. And then when that kind of blows up in their face saying, oh, well, well, hang on, we're not putting a stop to it. We're, we're, we're fine with you, you know, you having your democracy, but just not not the way that you want it. Right. We're, we're going to say you can have your bottle return scheme, but no blast, just this arbitrary limitation. Their attacks on voter franchise itself, you know, um, you will be having a Westminster election um, next year, which is terrifying, <laughs> uh, terrifying uh, another election. But, you know, we'll be having an election next year and a lot of people will find in Scotland as well that they won't be able to vote because the Conservatives have seen fit to to take that franchise away from them um, unless they manage to get uh, um, unless they manage to get ID for themselves. Just buying in, in the, one of the min- Tory ministers today, the questions was asked about the electoral issues from from that uh, voter ID and the Lacroix. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, you would need to check answers to get her exact words, but she was basically saying that the vast majority of people were able to vote. And that isn't the issue. The issue is a significant minority were denied their electoral franchise, and that, that skews the whole system. So absolutely possible. So apologies for, for butting in there, but that was sort oh, of hot I think you're right. Even, even anecdotally, I mean, I've heard stories of people showing up looking to vote with um, documents that are completely valid. Um, an Irish driver's license, for example, showed up to vote with an I- Irish driver's license, which is allowed, and we're told, no, nah, off you go, go away. So what's really scary about voter ID is not just, you know, these examples of your over 60 Oyster cards is valid, but your, you know, your 18-year-old Oyster card is not for some reason. But even when you show up with valid documentation um, being turned away and denied your right to vote, it's just... Another terrifying attack on democracy from the Conservatives and Labour are not really much better at all. I mean, look at their own internal party democracies, just non-existent at this point, you know. Even even the, the prospect of a Labour government uh, doesn't really fill me with much hope for democracy in the country. I think the best way to, to make sure that, you know, our voices are heard and that we are represented is to be independent where we, you know, we can trust that our government will, will protect our democracy, you know. No, absolutely. Yes, you're spot on there, Callum. That's the only way we get to any kind of de- democracy is, is with independence. I mean, the UK, as well as being a failed state on so many levels, you would struggle to actually say it's democratic. The, the majority of parliamentarians in the UK are unelected. You know, that to me is, is a sign that it's not really democratic. And it's the only country other than Iran that has unelected clerics in its, in its parliament. I mean, this is not a this is not a good advert, you know, for the for the mother of politics. Well, I was just thinking, and even those that are elected have what kind of mandate? Um, this current government, which has such a large majority that has effective absolute power over the UK state, bar the veto of the king, 
was elected on 43% of the vote, which is roughly the same share that Walter Mondale won in the United States in 1984, leading to a 49-state wipeout against him. The UK government, that the UK House of Commons that initiated Brexit in 2017, was elected to a Tory majority government off of 37% of the vote, which is just madness. And I think it, it, it is a key area where really only with independence can we get a more uh, democratic system like we have in Scotland, because Labour, we know already now, Keir Starmer said he has no intention of implementing proportional representation in the next parliament. When we look around the other place in the world to center-left parties, uh, center-left federalist parties like the Liberals in Canada, who were elected the first time in 2015 on a pledge to implement proportional representation, once they get power at the national level, they suddenly lose interest in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's since been totally scrapped. Uh, unless Scotland goes independent, there is really no real prospect of moving to a system other than one in which 40 plus percent of the population can elect a government with absolute power and completely ignore a nation like Scotland, even if it returns 58 out of 59 MPs for one party. We're starting to get a few questions coming in. Um, so the, the subject we're on there, just about the gerrymandering of the, the electoral system that's been going on, we've had a Eddie Woofries has said, what's wrong with presenting your national insurance number? I don't think we really needed to present anything, uh, uh, to be perfectly honest, because the, the 29 election, which is, was the last Westminster one we had, to my knowledge, I believe there was only one person prosecuted for electoral fraud in the UK. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that tells you that is not... And, and I think if there was to be a, a system, then then it should be a, a national card that's issued to everybody so that there is nobody without the correct ID requirements. But there's no point really doing that. I mean, the, the fallback position. So, so yeah, I think that's a really good point. Well, and, and I think this is just a quick thing for America because we've been dealing with this now for over a decade, voter suppression through voter ID. Um, the fact... There is no problem of voter fraud in this country, as demonstrated, as you said, one person prosecuted in 2019 election. The fact that there isn't, that they are bringing forward this change without there being an actual problem which it counters is an indication that the motive is something different. It can't be to combat voter fraud because there isn't voter fraud. The only other logical explanation for why they're doing this is because they believe it will suppress votes. So I think that's the answer to what's the problem with the question with, with yeah. just presenting your national insurance number. Yeah, and hi highlighted wonderfully but the, the the very fact that as Callum pointed out that a young person's bus pass isn't counted but an old person's is because there's a belief that there's a an age factor in, in the way people vote I remember my, my mother had a, an expression from the, the referendum which she said to me we can't let these people win and I think that's the message we all need to be saying to everybody we, we need to be a lot smarter than they are the very fact that they are so transparently trying to gerrymander democracy in this in this country should be uh, enough of a, a rallying point for any sort of decent-minded liberal-thinking person to be saying, mm -hmm. I don't know that this is not on, um, mm -hmm. and to get a backlash against that. So let's let's hope that that's indeed what we, we see. What we see is maybe an appeal for what happened in the 2010 election in Scotland, where the anti-Tory vote was such that every anti-Tory MP was returned with a larger majority than they had the time before. And I think that's maybe mm -hmm. the message we need to be getting out there, you know. Mm -hmm. This is since I was running to talk about America. I think it, it is vital to get ahead of this now because it began in the United States with you just need to show a driver's license or a national insurance number. That was 15 years ago. By three years ago, you know, it moved from there to questions of 
uh, state legislatures being able to overturn the results of the of the popular election if uh, there was a suspicion of fraud and submit their own slate of electors all the way up to the last uh, election, the midterms in 2022, in which across the country people were running on a an explicit pledge that if they were uh, elected to oversee the uh, elections in their state in 2024, they would deliver the election to Donald Trump. So once a party gets used to suppressing democracy, gets used to tweaking democracy, every next step is easier than the first one. If we shut it down now, it won't be too dangerous. But if, if this gets through, uh, this voter suppressing national ID, voter ID policy gets through, then the next steps get progressively more dangerous. But a comment there from Tina Chalmers saying, photo ID costs money. Do you agree this is an attempt to stop the poor from, from voting? And, and certainly the poorer members of our society, also a lot of disabled people, um, those with learning difficulties will be less likely to have the appropriate ID and will find it in many cases more difficult to apply for and get the ID that's available. So it's definitely to stop the the less advantaged the, from voting, to stop the younger people from voting, and, and it's to try and give out and out the Tories a, an, an advantage. Women who wear the veil, too? Yeah. Ashbury Stumble had made a, a comment. I just it's just going off the page. Best register for a postal vote, and I, I would agree with that. They are bringing in changes to postal votes as well, which is the bad news. But at least you have that ready in advance, and it will apply for what at the moment is five years, but it will change to three years going forward. And there will be some requirement to again prove your identity when you apply for one. But at least once you have that, you just get every vote sent to you during that period, which I think is a, a much easier way than people turning up on the day, being denied their vote, people have busy lives and maybe not being able to return their own find their ID and, and get back to, to vote, especially if it's late at night or they're rushing before they go to their work. Or... I think the other thing that's interesting uh, has been said, it's almost like, you know, the the Tory government seem to have two ways of working. You know, it's either incompetence or it's planned confusion. And maybe it's both in this case, you know. I don't think they not they actually know. And one of the one of the instances that you mentioned earlier about people, I think it was Calm said it as well about the, the bus passes. So there were nurses going along to vote in their uniforms with their badges, working in probably next door to people in schools and they were getting turned away because they didn't have what they were told was the right identification. So if you had actually wanted to organise this thing properly, it could have been done properly. But so therefore you come, you come to this conclusion it must be deliberate uh, for this planned confusion. To, uh, mm-hmm. And the other thing you said, Martin, which I thought was extremely interesting, it will have the desired effect because people say, oh, I can't be bothered with that. That mm-hmm. is the point that then they've won, and that's how they see it. I think that's how they manipulate the system. Mm-hmm. It's what uh, social media companies, I think, call it adding friction. If you just make it ever so slightly harder to access the app, and a significant number, higher number of people won't do it. Yeah, no, that's a, a, very, a very good phrase, I think. But yes, <laughs> thanks for that. We've got a couple a couple other questions out there. They're probably aimed at what we were talking about with Bert earlier there. Ashbury Stumble was seen was that the hanging chads I think it was, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, oh my lord, the hanging chads. That was the most absurd story of all. So uh, uh Al Gore lost the uh two thousand the two thousand presidential election by four hundred uh, five hundred and thirty seven votes in Florida. They started to recount the votes in Florida. They had these absurd called the butterfly ballot, which was confusing enough to begin with. But the way that you voted was by taking a whole bunch and punching a hole in the ballot next to the name of the candidate you wanted. 
um, they when they started the recount, they found a significant number of these ballots had uh, the turns out the name for a little circle of paper made when you punch a hole. It's called a Chad. And some of these, who knew? Um, I don't believe that that was the name before that. I think they made it up. But uh, it was a number, significant number of these ballots. The hole punch wasn't quite all the way through. Maybe there was a dent. Maybe it was almost all the way out. But the little circle, the Chad, was just hanging off by a thread. And the election auditor ruled that uh, if the Chad was still in any way attached to the ballot, then the vote didn't count. Um, and so that was, yeah, on the basis of hanging Chads, we got George W. Bush and the war on terror. Uh, yeah, well, there we go. With a, another comment from Charles Smith saying, does Bert have a view on the admission by a Trump cohort of stealing votes resulting in the actual winner losing? Have you had, I'm, I'm not sure what person they're referring to there, I haven't heard about that, and that must have been a, a, a local race. I do know that Trump is set to go on trial for um, uh, putting in a call to the Georgia Secretary of State in a state that would have made the, would very possibly have made the difference in the 2020 election after Election Day, saying, just find me 11,000 votes, and my congressman will take care of the rest. And that's what I'm saying. It starts with something that sounds sensible, like just require everybody to present their national insurance number. But because what they're actually doing and what the Tories know they're doing is tampering with the election, every time you do that, it gets a little bit easier to just crank it up until the point where, you know, Boris Johnson is on the phone to the count in Surrey Hall South saying, just find me 50 more votes and we'll get it through. Yeah, we've had a, a comment on postal votes. Obviously, someone's concerned that they may be counted at the Tory HQ. I, I've watched postal votes over decades and it is one of the most secure forms of voting. The the ID checks that are there, that are held securely. I've, I've seen every part of the process. So I, I've explained this on a number of occasions to people. It really is a secure system of voting. The only risk for postal votes, and it's not tampering with the, the vote that's cast, it would be if there was undue influence in the person's home when they're filling in the ballot, because that's where the potential secrecy of a ballot could be lost. It, it's something that can happen in in some cases, families where there's a particularly domineering member. And I suspect on a political level, that probably cuts all ways, so everybody benefits and loses a bit by that. It's not something any of us would want to see, but again, it's relatively minor. Having said that, it's on a much larger scale, I would think, than actual voter impersonation, which is what we've got the whole voter idea about. So who knows what will come next in terms of the, <laughs> the Tories' plans, because if they're worried about one person possibly fraudulently voting, what would they do about perhaps... A few thousand people mm -hmm. using undue influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah they're, they're trying to find an answer to a problem that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Doesn't exist, and uh, it does now. We're joined in the studio um, to my right with Bert McLennan, and we're joined online in the Falkirk area with Callum Cooper, and they are both giving us their takes uh, from a, a national and international take on the democratic deficit, which is a, is a very wide ranging subject. Um, but it's live just, just now in a way that it has not been live in a, in a long time. And we've got a follow-up question from Charles Smith uh, from the Attorney General's admission, probably in court. Uh, so I'm, I don't know of, of a race being uh, like of a Republican official recently confessing to throwing a race. It is possible that this is connected to, and you can do a Google and tell me if I'm uh, right or wrong, Charles. There's The Attorney General of Texas has just recently been impeached. Um, by his own party because his corruption got so rampant um, that he was, I know, that he was, for all no, it gets better. He was corruption was so rampant and he was convicted in court, but, you know, they gave him a settlement thing, so he was required to pay $2 million or something. 
to settle this obscene corruption. And what he then did was submit a special bill to the Texas Senate to make the taxpayer pay his $2 million settlement for the corruption that he had carried out. So he's they that was what finally made them say this is too much. So he's being prosecuted. It may well be that Ken Paxton has in the process of all of this admitted to rigging an election somewhere in Texas. Um I would just say I'm not surprised, um, but it's sad. Yeah, the whole the whole democratic deficit is is sad. Callum, do you wanna you've got some ideas on what we should be doing as a as a party, I believe. Yeah. So um I think when it comes to democracy and stuff like that, right? The important thing, and we've mentioned, we've sort of touched on this, is that everybody has their voice heard and that our governments actually represent the political views of people. Right? Um, so we mentioned about uh, what, the Tories getting a majority on like 37% of the vote um, is outrageous. Um, that's the problem that we have with first past the post, as I'm sure, you know, we can all agree. And, and um, But assuming that we're all on that the system that we use in scotland for local elections and back home in ireland for every election the single transferable vote is is in my opinion fantastic right the way it works is you rank your candidates in order of preference so for example i might like well say for argument's sake i like the green party right i can rank the green party number one but i'm not worried about wasting my vote because if the green party candidate does quite badly then my vote will go to the second preference to uh, the SNP candidate instead, because I rank SNP two, maybe Labour three, maybe you know, and so on and so on. Um, so there's no sort of fear that we're going to lose our vote. Um, but the key thing about single transferable vote is that you have multiple representatives in one constituency. So this means that if twenty percent of people vote for Labour. And around about 20% of the parliament or of your constituency seats or whatever it might be, um, they will be Labour MPs or MSPs or whatever it is, councillors. If 30% vote SNP, 30% become SNP. And I'm quite worried about the maths here. What does that other 50% mean? But, you know, and that's sort of how it ends up working. And that's really, really good. It means that if you are in sort of a minority in your political opinion in your constituency, you can still vote the way you feel without having to vote tactically for the least bad of two options, which is often the case um, when it comes to Westminster elections. The problem with the system that we have in Scotland right now is that goes completely out the window when it comes to by-elections. So um, I think one of the most egregious examples of this is the Fortisset Ward in North Lanarkshire. Over the 2017 to 2022 term, they had elections, one because the SNP councillor was elected as an MP and one because the uh, Conservative councillor bizarrely refused to take his seat. Um, but because they had originally ended up with two Labour councillors, one SNP, one Tory, Labour being the biggest party in the ward, and those by-elections both went to Labour. So despite the fact that Labour, that the SNP and the Tories combined got more, more a higher share of the vote than Labour, they ended up with no representation and Labour with like 27% of the vote ended up with 100% of the seats, which is worse than the worst of first past the post. There's not one Westminster constituency of all 650 where an MP has gotten elected uh, representing 100% of, of the ward, the constituency, on 27%. So what I would propose is the system is very similar to the system that we use 
in in Holyrood, where if a vacancy arises, but when a vacancy arises um, for a regional seat, that is just filled by the, the outgoing party. It's the same system that we have in Ireland for local elections as well. So if somebody leaves, then their party will nominate the replacement. Now, the criticism of this is essentially that they wouldn't have been voted for by individuals, that they would have been nominated by the party. But I think it's important that we sort of look realistically and honestly about how people vote in local elections. I could run for local council. Um, I've no plans whatsoever to do so, but I could. And nobody here knows who I am. But they might see SNP and go, oh, I like SNP. I'll vote for him. They're not voting for me. They're voting for the party. Um, and a lot of SNP councillors have very, very different views to each other. You know, I think the leadership election kind of showed that a lot. Um, but they get their seats because of their party, right? So I essentially, that's what I would propose. Funnily enough, I've I've spoken about that before myself because I, I went, before we had the first Scottish STV election, we went across to Ireland and met a number of the Irish parties. And, and that was one of the factors that they'd said they didn't have by-elections which, you know, in itself is a saving to the public purse, but the, by co-opting a member of the party that lost the seat, you preserve the proportionality of the original election, and which has to be a good a good thing because it's the proportionality that's the, the strength of STV. Um, I, I've often wondered if perhaps when it was brought in in Scotland, we should have gone further and insisted on council structures to be proportionately representative as well. So it wasn't just the the biggest cabal took took all embracing power after the after the election and the proportionality was lost. So I, I think we're possibly on on some similar pages there, <laughs> in in terms of the in terms of the debate. Can I can I ask you, Callum? So what kind of reaction are you getting to that suggestion? If you've spoke to quite a few people about it, what's the reaction been from others? So the reaction's quite mixed because I, I mean you know it's not something that we're sort of familiar with here, right? So any sort of change um will have mixed reactions i feel um and this isn't something that a lot of people have considered um it seems so initially when you say hey i think we can have more democracy by having less votes um some people kind of feel a little bit uneasy about that and they're kind of like well hang on how does that work you know um but once i kind of explain it to people once i sort of say listen this is actually the situation you know and they'll say but people's opinions change. That's one of the arguments I've heard against it is that people's opinions change and, and when their mind changes, they deserve to to have that heard. But that doesn't actually that doesn't actually tend to be the case in practice. So for example, um in Amund and Urn, we increased our vote share. Parties can increase their vote share and still lose and still do quite badly. I'll give you some examples. In Fort William, the Tories increased their vote share by eight and a half percent, but still lost to the SNP. Um, in Ahmed and Earl, the SNP, we increased our vote share by 7.7%, bringing us up to 37.3% of the total vote share. And the Conservatives decreased their vote share by 8.4%. And we still lost to the Tories, leaving us with no representation, despite having got 37.3% of the vote in that by-election. Uh, Melrose, the SNP, almost doubled our vote share from 17.8 to 30.2% and still lost the seat. Um, and then in Perth, we actually, very nice, we gained a majority um, in in local council because of a by-election. But realistically, that's not what people voted for. 
in Perth. So a by-election can actually flip control of the council from an SNP minority where we have to work with other parties and listen to what other people have to say to actually just being able to do whatever we want. And as, as nice as that is, right, um, that's not for us. That's not actually what democracy looks like. You know, that's not respecting the actual outcome of the vote. No, I think that's a fair point. I, I, I don't know who originally said this line. I, I remember one of the old party stalwarts from West Lothian, Angus McGilvery, who was a councillor in, in, in the old days and was headquarters doing the publication stuff, used to often tell us, remember, democracy is just mob rule. So we've got to take it from that base mob rule into something that's truly proportionate and reflective of society, which is, is actually a modern democratic challenge for us all. But I've got a question to ask. Callum back. Um, I'm going back to when I was elected as a councillor in 2005, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And at, at that time, we had a ward. And yeah. it was a ward that was uh, easily, your boundaries were easily identifiable. And then it became, uh, they all amalgamated multiple wards, became one ward. Do you think that was, a, was that something that people asked you? Should we go back to that type of system? Is that an easier system to understand in the the, the bigger ward. Are you are you talking about smaller wards with one single representative? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I haven't. It's not come up um, when speaking with other people. Um, but I know. I th- I think if I remember correctly, that was something that you thought was was better because you knew who you were going to and and who your representative was, and it meant that everybody had sort of an equal amount of work. Whereas when you know when you've got multiple representatives representing one ward. Some people can be overburdened and other people, not so much. I have to say, as, as an elected member, uh, it was fun being the sole member representing an area, but from a democratic point of view, it's it, it wasn't good for the public and it meant the councils were in the same boat as Westminster is just now, where, you know, mob rule can be achieved on 35% of the vote and, you know, the majority of people in an area could actually be opposed to the person that, that's representing them, which really isn't isn't healthy at all you know i have to say i agree with what callum said earlier std is the fairest system out there of of the systems that that i've seen and indeed i i can recall a number of years ago i think it was donald gorry the liberal msp was suggesting Mm. something similar for hollywood and and he was the only person i've seen come up with a really workable scheme um so i think there's a bit more work he's done on that kind of level going forward plus Comment up on screen that Hashbury stumbled said about PR at Westminster probably leading to the Lib Dems being in eternal coalitions. That That's one possibility. I, I think there's a, a, a much more likely outcome. And having looked at the political parties down here over the last eight years, the, the Tories are two or three different parties merged into one, and the same is true of Labour. If you had a proper PR system, these parties would not survive the way they do. You would have a very different style of politics in, in, in the country. You would also have a much more positive style of politics because people would be voting positively for what they wanted, not, oh, that's the best of a bad law or I don't want this one. You know, so I think it changes the whole dynamic if we had if we had PR. So and, and of course it does mean that when you get electoral blocks, for want of a better expression, of different parties that w- would be likely to be allies, you you may have power brokers and, and that's just the nature of of the of the of the beast. But I would hope that we'd be more consensual. It's certainly, we need to carry enough of the, the members in our chamber together to, to pass legislation. It wouldn't be the, the mob rule that we see with the Tories just now with their AEC majority and complete detachment from reality and public opinion on so many so many issues. So a lot of positives. 
I totally agree. That's exactly what I was thinking when I saw the question. And I think that's another reason why you can be confident that any kind of proportional representation will never be introduced by a UK government because once, whether it was labor or conservative, they know that once they introduce that policy, they are signing the death warrant of their own party, at least for the next election. Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, both, both history and logic suggest that the only way you get to that kind of fairer, more representative democratic system, at least for the people of Scotland, is in an independent Scotland. Sorry, I, I was just going to say on, on coalitions as well, I don't necessarily agree that coalitions are, are a bad thing, as, as I think has been suggested um, somewhere in the chat. And I don't think it means that, you know, one party is basically the kingmaker, one party is dictating. And, you know, it means that a consensus can be formed and quite the opposite. One party is not dictating. No one party has any power. Thinking about Ireland, for example, um, where we have seen the transferable vote for for elections to the national parliament. There was a bit of a, a, a scenario there over the last week where people before profit who have five out of like a hundred and 60 or something like that tds they got a bill passed because the green party who are in government voted against the other two parties in government and voted with the opposition and um, so it means that parties are there's there's a much more sort of i guess collaborative way of doing things on every on every issue rather than just a yep this is what the government wants. This is what the government wants. This is what the government wants. I'm sure, you know, John and Martin, you're kind of, I, I would imagine, sick and tired of just wanting to do whatever, wanting to be against whatever, and never, ever getting your way because of just this this massive majority. Whereas if we broke things down and, and, and has, you know, smaller parties, which represent the sort of specific niches that, that they represent, because as you said, the conservatives are sort of three parties in one. Labour are three parties in one. Even the SNP, you know, there are, you know, a lot of different views within the party um, on certain issues. I think a lot more could get done because it's not just, you know, all of the Tories are voting together on this issue and all of Labour are voting together on this issue. And, and a, a lot of people will be voting against what they actually believe and voting in line with parties. Whereas if we broke that down and we had a system of proportional representation, that, that wouldn't be as much an issue. So I think coalitions are... Are a good thing in that people can can work more collaborative. We had a couple of other questions that have came in. Um, these ones are are all for Bert. To be honest, you're obviously proving popular tonight. But Ashbury stumbles asked, "How many candidates have announced they're running for the Republicans? Trump, Pence, DeSantos, and any others?" Mr. Stumble uh, is very much is clearly paying very close attention because you've actually anticipated Mike Pence's announcement by about twenty four hours. Um, Mike Pence is expected to declare tomorrow, I believe, either tomorrow or Wednesday. There are seven Republican candidates in the race right now. Trump, DeSantis, uh, Tim Scott, who's the senator from South Carolina, Nikki Haley, who's the former governor of South Carolina, um, Asa Hutchinson, who's the former governor of Arkansas, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's an Indian-American uh, tech entrepreneur with about $700 million, who's likely to make some kind of small impact, and Larry Elder, uh, who's a radio host from California, who is not. Um, the other people who are going to declare later this week include uh, the governor of North Dakota, who no one's ever heard of, but who seems relatively sane and therefore will probably not win the nomination. And um, Chris Christie, who is neither sane nor likely to win the nomination. Um, basically, I think uh, the, the overwhelming favorite uh, has to be Trump. 
DeSantis is the only other one who appears to have a serious chance, and that's only because most people have never actually sat down and watched an interview of him or met him. I heard someone describe him recently as um, uh, he's relatable, or at least he has Googled relatability. He's asked Chat GPT how to have a conversation. Um, and yeah, he's, I know, there was a beautiful recording of an interaction with him in Iowa recently at a meet and greet with voters. And he says, Hi, what's your name? And the guy says, I'm, I'm Ken Branson. He says, Okay. And that's the end of it. And then just silence. That's the end of the interact. Yeah. So uh, if, if you're interested on which ones, he's not one for having difficult conversations. If you're interested in who else to watch, maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, the some of the some of the commentators are excited about Tim Scott. I personally don't think he's got a chance because they're excited about him. He's a little bit more reasonable, and so he's not going to make it. Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy could be interesting. I can't imagine him winning the nomination. Um, I mean, he's a he's a first generation American practicing Hindu in a party that's increasingly Christian nationalist. Um, he's also just he he seems more likely to be the, the sort of Andrew Yang of this election than the other uh, than anything else. But he's worth watching. Uh, it gets to the point about Democratic backsliding though, because the way the Republicans elect uh, choose their presidential candidate is effectively by a first past the post competition among the 50 states. So the, each state in the U.S. holds a primary. In the Democratic Party, the percentage of vote that you get in that state's primary awards you a certain number of delegates to the party's national convention that chooses the president. Um, in the Republican primary, whoever gets the highest percentage of votes in, I think, nine out of ten of their primaries gets all of the delegates for that state. So if Donald Trump is in, in a 10-candidate field, if Donald Trump is bringing in even 40% of the vote, uh, he's almost certainly going to win, and he's currently polling at well over 60%. And if you don't believe me that he can win with 40%, in 2016, Donald Trump only got 35% of the votes in the Republican primary, um, and yet he swept the board because it's an undemocratic first-past-the-post system. Well, there we go. A lot to see, can Same question for you that's came in with is a uh, your thoughts on Scotland having a constitution, given most countries have one? And obviously following on to that, uh, would that help us get to independence? Um, well, I'm, I'm easily the least qualified person in the room to say whether uh, it would whether telling Scottish voters that we plan a constitution would help Jen uh, support for independence. And just in terms of having one, I do think, I mean, I think when you're starting out uh, as a new country like Scotland, it would be fairly essential to have a constitution. What you have in the absence of a constitution is a situation in which any government that has 51% of the votes in the legislature theoretically could, could do anything, um, could theoretically vote away elections. It's only a constitution that, you know, it's only constitutional protections that maintain, protect things like the right to free speech, um, the right to uh, fair trial, the right to free and fair elections. I would imagine that after uh, an, an, in an independent Scotland, there would have to be um, basically a, a constitutional convention in which parties from across the spectrum and people from all across Scotland had to come together to develop uh, a guiding set of binding rules, which you would need a, a high supermajority of the legislature to overturn. And that's basically what a constitution ultimately is. This is difficult in a lot of countries because you need to bring together a document that commands more than you know, it has to come in basically more than 70 percent support across the country at its outset to be legitimate i think in scotland it would be easier than a lot of countries because 
the only really anti-progressive, I mean, properly anti-progressive party um, in the Scottish Parliament is the Scottish Conservatives, who only poll about 20% of the vote. Um, I mean, they would definitely want to be included in a constitutional convention, but even if they objected to everything, as long as you had a broad agreement on a broad set of basic fundamental constitutional principles between the various stripes of progressive that you find in the SNP, Labour, Lib Dem, and Greens, you could still end up with a document that had close to 80% support at the outset, which is enough to launch a constitution. So I think Scotland is ideally placed after independence to put together a strong and workable constitution. No, thanks. We have a comment um, from Adrian Lutomsky, whose point we've covered, covered earlier tonight is absolutely spot on. If, if the government here does insist on voter ID, it should provide an ID for everybody, which is the only fair way of doing that to ensure that there's a level playing field and nobody is artificially disen disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. We'll bring the, the, the Yes Hub in now. Um, Great to see you all. Great to hear the debate. How, how's, how are things going at the, the Yes Hub? Anything you've been up to, Kenny, that you'd like to let everyone know about? Talking to Johnny about uh, doing something on local shop local businesses um, and um, supporting local businesses, especially in the hospitality industry post-COVID. And uh, one of Johnny's constituents uh, runs a, a, a local cafe. She's going to do a, a piece for us in that. We're going to be going to see her in the next few days to take some footage of the cafe and uh, and have that prepared for, for our future eye matters. Just looking forward to the, to the summer and that we were out just promoting, promoting independence at the weekend. Chance with the good weather coming out and the positivity you get there to to go out and and just keep keep on uh, championing independence where where we can. So we're Falkirk High Street and at the weekend, and it was a, a astonishing uh, positive response for who wants Scotland to be an independent country. Uh, I think we almost universally were were positive in that, and all the people we engaged with, at least a good percentage. So everything's looking really encouraging. Really, as we look forward to the summer. And uh, yeah, the Yes movement is, is very much alive and well. Uh, the hub here is much well well used and much appreciated. And uh, as I said, we've got these uh, all these sort of community activists between the local local businesses and friends from charities. That's, that's another uh, perspective item coming up. One of the local equality charities that uh, are keen to talk to us too. So we're just, as I said, spreading the net, spreading the good word, and. Uh, and get people involved and get footage for for future events. I think we also have, have more from Kirsty Hagee too, the, the the folk singer. She's uh, very much an up and coming talent in the in the Fourth Valley, Central Scotland area, and we're we're fortunate to have her as a friend of the show. And um, so, no, that's that's uh, ec excellent to hear here, Kenny. We've got some very interesting um, speakers coming up for future shows. Does the panel have any suggestions to prevent politics by reasons debate morphing into politics by cash, media, and corporate power? <laughs> I don't think that's answered in a post. I, I, who, who would like to go far on that anyway? Um, strict campaign finance laws. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. We, I mean, we, we have very strict rules in, in the UK, and I'm not the biggest fan of the UK, but it's, it's electoral rules and the worst in the world. They are still open to abuse, mm. and they're certainly open to the people overspending through certain legal routes of national spending or free targeting and, and things. So that so it's not entirely a level playing field, but it is 
better than in many other places. Yeah, so I think we just need a much stricter set of controls there. I'm a bit of an electoral anorak, and I've often thought that one way of controlling and checking whether people are overspending or spending illegally would be to have an almost live accounting reporting system. Um, that would be a nightmare for those of us in electoral oh. politics, but it would be one way of making sure everybody stayed honest, and if something was going out on the streets, it ought to be being accounted for live as it, as it were. And if, you, if you've commissioned something, you know you've commissioned it, you know the there's a cost centre coming in. So, so I think there's ways so that could be done. Uh, and it would certainly be verifiable on the ground. You would see a leaflet come through your door and you would look up and say, oh, they've not declared this. Uh-huh. Or, you know, where did this come from? You know, and I think that would be an interesting approach. So I, I've got some very unique views on, on how electoral uh, rules could be tightened there. They're, they're, those are not party views or even views, I think, that would be particularly advocated across the country, but something people uh, or a lot of systems forget to control for in campaign finance laws is limiting not just uh, how much individuals can give to a campaign, but how much individuals can spend on their own campaign if they're running for election. Uh, you know, it, it won't apply in most races, but we saw something like Mike Bl- Michael Bloomberg becoming mayor of New York City for 12 years, basically because he could afford to buy all of the ad space in yeah. New York City throughout the campaign. It doesn't quite let you buy an election, but if you imagine three candidates standing on a stage, two of them have to use their voice and one of them is allowed to buy a bullhorn, it doesn't guarantee they'll win, but it gives them a very unfair advantage. I think that's a, that's just a small piece of it that the, the tartan tie-wearing billionaire reminded me of. I think another thing is pretty obvious is to cap the amount that you can donate to a party. So here we have to declare donations. Um, I think it's about £50. That are made, but in Ireland, an anonymous donation cannot be made over a hundred pound. And then to a political party, the maximum you can donate is I think six thousand three hundred and fifty a year to a party, and two thousand five hundred and forty to a, a a candidate. Which you know they're huge, huge amounts of money still. Um, but it's good that there's a cap, so you cannot donate more than that amount, no matter how hard you try. It's illegal. It's not about declaring your donation it's just you can't give them that much money um or more than that much money i should say and that includes obviously what we would consider as donations here so you know discounts and and uh you know work done for free that you would ordinarily charge for stuff like that um so capping donation amounts is a is a really big thing that seems to me like it should be common sense but um it's not something that's uh that's here unfortunately and i mean it 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 works well in some cases i I mean you know obviously i'd say labor are quite happy and i would be quite happy to be honest about about unions being huge huge donors uh in politics but on the flip side you've got billionaires being huge donors in politics which i think is something that we need rid of and obviously the snp we 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 don't benefit from that um as much as as the other parties our donations a lot of them a lot of the time come from just our membership fees. I think it's like sixty percent of our money comes from membership fees or something like that, and that's like the pound a month sort of stuff. At the risk of interrupting you, Callum, Johnny and I are smiling here because we we've been around so long that we remember when it was always uh, the candidates put their own hand in their pockets and yeah. paid for everything. It was such a huge thing, and there's still a, a large element of that that the the committee basically uh, overburdened by 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 the pressures of 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 a campaign. I I can recall. I'll not name the names or, or embarrass any of the folk, but I recall one of the cash-strapped campaigns of years back and in the campaign office with target letters, we didn't have envelopes. 
So we needed envelopes for target letters. So how many target letters do we have? We had, I can't remember, 20,000 or whatever we were putting out. And they just counted around, right, what do we need? Go to the envelope company. There was a company over in Basket and went over to Basket to get the envelopes. But before we did that, we needed to get a whip round. Everybody in, everybody in the campaign office that night stuck 20 quid in so we could pay for the envelopes. I have to say, though, on a positive note, that they made sure those envelopes got stuffed and delivered in a way that I've never seen before in my campaign. It certainly put buy-in, but it's not really the way we wanted to do it, but that was the only way it could be done. So At one time, all the boards that you put up and all the lampposts, then uh, you had to do that. We quite liked doing that because we had the activists that actually could do it, because the Tories didn't have the activists. They couldn't be seen doing such a lowly job, you know, a lot of them. So we were, we were quite happy with that, but at the end of the day, when the, the council took the decision not to allow you to put the boards up on the lampposts, there was a big sigh of relief, I think, for most people. It wasn't so much putting them up. It was later on taking them all back down again. <laughs> <laughs> Just to express our gratitude to both our guests, Bert and Callum, for joining us tonight. I hope it's not been too painful an experience for either. You know, it's been very good fun. It's good fun for us. We like to talk to sane people from the real world instead of the nutters that we deal with down here all the time. So that's, that's a real benefit. Hopefully the, the audience enjoyed it as well. Thank you to the guests and thank you to Kevin at Independence Live for all the techie support uh, for getting the show up and running, to guys at the Yes Hub in Falkirk and also, as I said earlier, to Linda Graham for Broadcasting Scotland for the, the new, well, new to us, the cameras that she's given us to improve the quality of our broadcast all of it great and it's good to see such parts of the yes movement yeah. coming together working together and we just all have to spread that message that we are one big family even when there are sometimes disagreements because that is the strength of our movement is our diversity i hope you enjoyed that discussion if you'd like to catch regular episodes of i'm artists for westminster check out independence live's youtube channel and we'll be back next friday so thanks for listening bye now